Hey guys, do you have a screenplay you need feedback on? Well, you are in luck. I, Julio, the half of the contrarians that speaks with an accent, I'm doing official screenplay coverage now. And if you're a listener of the show, you'll get a discount. Just email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com and tell us which is your favorite episode of the podcast and why. Turnaround is about two weeks and you'll get detailed notes that are even more thorough than what we do in the show. Although they'll also be less funny. For more information, email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com or visit our website, wearethecontrarians.com, and click on the Julio Reads Your Scripts link. Your voice is beautiful. You must be joking. You want me to play some frumpy housewife who gets dumped for a flapper? Don't you remember who I am? Don't you know who you represent? I'm Helen Sinclair. Definitely. You are definitely Helen Sinclair. I look at you and I say, Helen Sinclair. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my buddy Julio. Julio, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I I just had a birthday very recently. Happy birthday! Thank you. And it was, as I mentioned before, uh, in the podcast, it was on inauguration day. It was. We got plastered. We did. And uh, and now we're back. We are. And you know what? I feel the same. So far, America hasn't. Uh, gone up in flames i figure we have a few weeks before uh, we start smelling smoke nor is it great again well no but you know you have to give him a chance alex <laughs> gotta give him a chance uh what we did give a chance today was mr woody allen and his film bullets over broadway as we continue down um the contrarians go to hollywood it's part three of our four-part series of visiting you know films about show business and the life that it is so to speak um as opposed to our last trip into Hollywood with uh, Entourage, this one was far more well-received. Uh, 96%. And so much that just has to be you know, reliance on the fact that, oh, Woody Allen did it. I think we just have to assume it's great. It's Woody Allen, and, and it's just uh, a cast of well-known actors, or at least most of them. Mm-hmm. So definitely, I think that influenced the critics. But lots of Red Tomatoes. Uh, for example, Time Out, there's no critic actually quoted there or credited, but it just says, no, don't speak, see it. And that's, if you've seen the movie. That's the, cute. That's cute. It's a wink. Susan Tavernetti from Palo Alto Weekly says, Woody Allen may not be on screen, but he's definitely in control, working his magic backstage behind the velvet curtain. Isn't that what a director is supposed to do? <laughs> Well, you know, she was fascinated to find out that that's what Woody Allen does when he's not on screen. Uh, Blake Davis from KFOR Channel 4 News says, One of Woody Allen's most inspired and ingenious ideas played by a dream cast. 
There you go. Praising mm-hmm. the cast. Uh, James Brardinelli from Real Views says, The most insightful and deliciously droll look at show business since Robert Altman skewered Hollywood in 1992's The Player. Another high praise movie we did at the beginning of this journey. That, and That's coming all set. around. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Edward Goodman from San Francisco Chronicle says, Woody Allen at its best, a gem of a Broadway fable with a crafty premise, a raft of brilliant actors at the top of their form, and a bouncy just-for-pleasure attitude. And finally, Roger Ebert, the man from Chicago Sun-Times, says the movie is very funny and, in the way it follows its logic wherever it leads, surprisingly tough. Well, it was surprisingly tough to watch. <laughs> but uh, I don't know, Alex. What do you think? To clarify, this is a bit unfair. I, I said the contrarians go to Hollywood, but in fact, we're going to Broadway. We're going to New York City for this one. But filter through the Hollywood lenses. Okay. We're still, I, I think that's how you save it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you making the save for me there. Um, whatever the case, for this one, we're going back to the Roaring Twenties, as it is, uh, I believe, the, the year was 1928 in New York City. Uh, we start off, basically, the first line of the movie, you just hear John Cusack shout, I'm an artist. And and then it's just like, brace yourselves, folks. <laughs> this is another movie about people that take their job way too seriously, or uh, not seriously enough, depending on... Uh, which side of the fence you are. So John Cusack is David Shane. He is a playwright who is basically, you know, you find off right away that this play has been his life's work. He is pitching the uh, play to Julian Marks, played by Jack Warden, who you're kind of just dropped in at the tail end of this conversation because he says, I'm not going to finance another flop. So there's a lot of unanswered questions off the bat. Uh, Did John Cusack have plays that didn't do well prior to this what exactly is the motivation behind that yeah and i don't think that woody allen cares he just assumed that having john cusack there saying i'm an artist would instantly put us on his side Mm -hmm. because it's john cusack he's one of the most likable actors uh this side of tom hanks but i I, I don't know i i I needed more i especially coming off uh entourage which has a very similar uh Beginning, because remember, the Entourage prologue ends with Vinny Chase saying, well, I want to direct now. Yes. And this conversation between John Cusack and his, I guess, producer, agent, whatever, ends with him saying, I'm studio directing head. the studio head. Yeah, he says, I'm, I'm directing this time. I'm not going to let anybody else uh, destroy my scripts. But yeah, with Entourage, you have a full 10 minutes of backstory and lead into that. And, and exactly, 10 minutes where they make the characters likable. Here is maybe five minutes where John Cusack is just kind of an entitled ass. So I, I was not on board with him directing this project, whatever it may be. <laughs> Whereas as soon as Vinny Chase says, I want to direct, I'm like, yes, it makes sense. We've had eight seasons of Vinny Chase <laughs> acting. It's time. Well, and much uh, where Entourage kind of put it all out on the line and you know, you understood what the movie was about, left us wanting more. The play in this... It, even through the end of the movie, it's not really clear what the hell it's about. I, do, I have no idea what happens to that play. I know that there's uh, there's speeches that supposedly get better as the movie goes along, but I couldn't tell you. It, there's it, no way to measure that improvement. No, none of it makes sense. And there's no awesome part where we get like a five-minute segment of the play, much like we had with uh, Hyde. With, uh, yes. Entourage. Whenever we see the play here, we, we get... Much like at the beginning of the movie, we just get in the middle of a scene and nothing makes sense. And before we can even start to process, it's out. When we saw Hyde, we saw the beginning. Yeah. We saw the opening credits of Hyde, and that was enough to really give you a sense of what the movie was about. I mean, I don't like being spoon-fed anything, but throughout the duration of this movie, Woody Allen, I think, 
expects a bit too much of his audience just to piece it all together. I don't even think that he expects anything from the audience. I think that he's gotten to that point where he's, like you said, like the critics, just he's Woody Allen. He's like, I'm Woody Allen. I can do whatever I want. I don't need to give you backstory. I just, I'm just going to say, today I feel like writing a scene that's only two pages long, and I have to write the end of it. So, yeah, you're out of luck. You're not going to get any of the backstory. You're just going to get the end of it. So we go from that to another painting picture of the uh, New York City scape in the late 20s where we see the mob just shooting some guys in a, with a shipment truck down in the middle of the street. Um, it, you have to squint because it's a bit dark, but this is our introduction to Chaz Palminteri. I, I really, as soon as I saw the 20s and I saw the the gangsters with their hats and their mm-hmm. tummy guns, and I was like, again, I mean, we are in the year 2017 by now, and I, I think that we... Right, this movie's from a 94. But still, by then, yeah. America had grown out of this uh, childish black and white depictions of Batman. I don't really think... Dick that, Tracy. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I, I did not come to watch a comic book movie by Woody Allen. I thought that we were going to really get into an exploration of Broadway in the 20s. But in a way, it's so cheap, so easy to set it in the 20s because you can revert to that black and white morality mm-hmm. we're like oh well the bad guys are going to be gangsters and they're just they're just bad there's no way there's no reason to give them any complexity because the audience is used to buying that archetype yeah put a hat on them give them a gun and now you don't have to justify why they're bad they're just bad they're, they're bad guys so of course we never find out why they're shooting the people that they're shooting yeah we, we, every murder that happens in this movie and there's a lot of them it's just kind of a casual gag and there's no reason behind well there's one that we actually know the backstory yeah. to, but that's the only but one. But there's many more ones that we're not sure of. Right. On the commentary, Woody Allen says, eh, it worked for Coppola. <laughs> so we go from that, we're introduced to the mob boss, who is played by Joe Vitarelli. Uh, Nick Val- Valenti, excuse me. Um, they call him Mr. V throughout the movie. Yeah. And his wife refers to him as Nicky. We're introduced to him mainly because he ends up financing this play on the grounds that his wife uh, is the lead in said play. Now, this is all done at a, a club, a, a dance club of some sort, basically a kind of like a cabaret type club. I'm not sure that it's his wife. Is this his wife? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're actually married? I thought it was his wife. I mean, I could be wrong. It I, was his girl. It regardless. It's, okay. it's the girl that he has affection for. Maybe I was looking too far into it because they live together, I just assumed. but well, I mean, it is the 20s. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the infidelity is nothing that this movie doesn't broach on the subject up to begin with. So his wife, girlfriend, what have you, his squeeze. He, She will be the star of the film, and he will basically float the bill on this. His squeeze being... Olive, played by the incomparable Jennifer Tilly here. Now, this wasn't necessarily her debut, but this was kind of her first big... I, I think this was the, the the movie that put her in the spotlight. Because she was uh, Chucky's bride after this, right? <laughs> was it, I mean, she's the bride of Chucky. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Probably 10 years after. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Actually, no. Yeah, Bride of Chucky was like turn of the millennium, so... It was under 10 years. Okay. Then what was the uh, seed of Chucky was the last one <laughs> Okay, where they had their kid together. Uh, she's also in this uh, the first Wachowski Brothers movie. Back when they were Wachowski Brothers before they were Wachowski siblings. Mm-hmm. So it's their first movie. It's called Bound with Gina Gershon. Have you seen it? <laughs> by your reaction, by your facial expression, I can tell that you, you have seen it. I'm, I'm familiar. <laughs> I saw it in theaters. 
Yeah, I wouldn't like that. <laughs> I, I would prefer to be alone. But she plays Olive Neal, and she is... The whole crux of the character is that she was kind of the pretty woman. She was a tramp that... And not my words, their words in the They're, film. They call her a tramp. Yes. Um, and Mr. V became smitten with her, and she's kind of in the... She wants to be an actress, but she has no real God-given talent or ability at this point, so... Um, I mean, we will never really know because the movie uh, contrives to put her in a lot of situations where you would have to have – there's a way of knowing she really has talent because the play is terrible. Mm -hmm. Or at least what we see of the play doesn't make any sense. So for all we know, she could be just – she's not inspired by the material. When we first see her, she's dancing. She's on stage. She seems talented then. Yeah. And uh, I think that the movie in a very cruel way – misrepresents her naivete, her innocence, because she's surrounded by gangsters and by all these showbiz people, mm -hmm. and, and paints her as an idiot when really she's just innocent. Yeah. Um, yeah, like you said, on stage, she looks good. That's why I made the cabaret comparison, because it's very reminiscent of some Liza Minnelli moves that she's got up there. Um, so that's the... We found where the play is going to get financed, and Julian explains this to David. It's like, all right, I found a way to finance the movie. I'll explain it later is what he tells him over the phone. Uh, we find out that Helen Sinclair is going to be the marquee star of the film. Helen Sinclair, of course, played by Diane Weist, who is not too thrilled with the material or the character that she's going to play right off the bat. Uh, Diane Weist, that's your girl. It is. She's uh, amongst the top of Alex's favorite actresses of all time. I think she's generally a good actress. I think here, in, in a movie that's filled with people that are overacting, she is the one that overacts the most. It's almost it, like a Saturday Night Live character that yes, she's playing. Yes, basically, but but in a 90-minute movie instead of five-minute sketch. <laughs> so it, it quickly grows old, and uh, you can almost hear Woody Allen encouraging her to go bigger yeah. behind the camera because she just goes for it in... in He's doing a lot of motioning. Yes. It, it, it's almost like she forgot that she is in a movie, not in a play. She plays an actress that's going to be in a play, but her performance in the movie itself is just so big. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, it didn't quite work for me. Talking her down from her anger and also basically stating what all the stipulations and clauses in her contract will be are, is her agent, Sid Loomis, played by the incomparable Harvey Firestein. Yeah, which, you know, you know she's overacting when she's going bigger than Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> that's... It, and that's the first scene that you see both of them together, and, and it's almost like Harvey's trying to play it down, and she's going bigger. You expect, like, a Street Fighter versus screen when that scene comes up, because <laughs> yes. it's like, all right, let's see who can do it bigger here. Yeah, but it, it's almost like she scared Harvey into submission, and he's he's still got... Oh, my God. He, he has a lot of lines, yeah. but but he's definitely not the alpha in that, in that battle. Well, she didn't win that Oscar for nothing. Yeah, well... The Academy loves their, their big scenery chewing They were scenes. finally waiting for someone to put Firestein down for the count. <laughs> uh, next scene we go to is uh, David. You know He's going to meet his star player. Julian takes him over to the house of uh, Mr. V to meet Olive. And at this point, you can see the wheels turning in David's head. Not only is this woman, just by the series of questions he asks, not um, you know that capable or familiar with acting, but also he's starting to realize what Mr. V does because he's on the phone barking orders to kill men in the background. Um, it's a very uncomfortable scene. Yes, you know what makes it more uncomfortable even? And it's a huge red flag, a big warning that this movie is not going to – it doesn't have good intentions in mind. 
that we get a cameo from uh, the black mate from It's a Wonderful Life. And and she actually gets a name this time. Her name is Venus. She shows up. She she has a little more more to do than back in her It's a Wonderful Life debut performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but still, she's just basically the black maid that serves uh, drinks. And Jennifer and, Tilly is just giving her the what for. Yeah, and of course because she's black, she gives her sassy remarks mm-hmm. as, as comebacks. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jennifer Tilly said she told her to make horse d'oeuvres. Which, if you've ever tried to spell the word hors d'oeuvres, then maybe you'd get that joke. Yeah, but then, and then, because she's the black sassy maid, she she will not take that lying down. And she just goes, I will never mess with a horse or yeah. something. I think Woody Allen just finally saw how hors d'oeuvres was spelled that day, and he was like, I'm, I'm going to make a way to put this in the skit. Um, but the entire scene is around David, uh, you know, frantically realizing what's going on, and he just loses it and tells Julian, no way will I do this. But... What this movie teaches you is that, you know, if you sell out, usually things are going to go your way. It's almost like the opposite version of That Thing You Do, uh, where That Thing You Do was a movie that conned people into getting into show business. And and this one is more of a, as the story develops, it becomes more of a, not even a cautionary tale, more like a horror story of like, you do not want to get into show business, mm-hmm. which I think, uh, without giving away the ending yet... I think that it's a shame because whereas that thing you do would uh, uh, trick people without talent into getting into an industry that would destroy them, I think Bullets of Broadway would scare people with talent into getting away from the arts yeah. because it paints this world of, of of Broadway, of theater, of artists as a backstabbing pool of people with no talent taking advantage of people with talent mm-hmm. and uh, and people with talent just being lost so it it's it's kind of an irresponsible move for Woody Allen, Woody Allen to make because yes. as a as an established filmmaker it just it, we've seen it before people not taking uh, not acknowledging the power that their movies their words carry and you know we always have the urban legends especially in those times of uh, films and plays being financed by the mob but really David here John Cusack there's no coming to God moment that he has. He's just all right. Yeah, he, let's do it. He sweats a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's his, that's John Cusack's version of overacting. Uh, it's just he's always sweaty and, and <laughs> just fidgety. It's it's kind of a I like John Cusack as a general rule, but I think it's a waste uh, to have such a competent actor just basically aping Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like oh well, Woody's too old to get a, to get this role, so instead we'll just have John Cusack do his Woody Allen impression, and it's not that great. So he goes from that to accepting it to we cut to the next scene where we're introduced to his girlfriend, his squeeze, Ellen, played by Mary Louise Parker, an incredibly young Mary Louise Parker. Who, Mary Louise like Parker I, when she was still in high school. Yeah, like I said for a second, I thought it was Anne Hathaway, and I was like, who, who CGI'd her into this film? Um, he basically explains to her his concerns and that he sold out, but again, just like, eh, I'll, I'll, I'll still do it anyway, uh, you know. No really moral compass to follow here. But we see the the play, the stage is, um, the theater rather, is the decors being put up. The marquees begin to have been erected there in New York. Uh, God of Our Fathers is the name of the play. Um, and we're slowly introduced to our cast. Uh, we have uh, Eden Brent, played by Tracy Ullman, which Julio, what did Tracy Ullman do for us? Oh, in, in The Contrarians? In Life. Oh, in Life. Uh, the Tracy Ullman Show. Which... Which, uh, no, 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 it's called The Tracy Ullman Show. Correct. Yes. 
you know what started on the Tracy Ullman show that's still going on to this day? The Simpsons. Thank you. Okay. All right. Me a while to get there. Yeah. We, we connected the dots there. Also in the play is Warren Purcell, played by Jim Broadbend, whose character here is basically, I was joking about Orson Welles. He... Yeah. It, it's just basically a movie-long joke about fat shaming. Yes. It's just basically, hey, this guy is having some real struggles with his weight. Let's just make fun of him. His stress coping mechanism is food. Let's make sure that we exploit it in the most comical way possible. Yes. Um, of course, the aforementioned Helen Sinclair, played by Diane Weist. And as far as the cast goes, I think that about rounds it out. Yeah, it's a it's a small play. Yeah, apparently, no no big uh, musical numbers. So, Mr. V, uh, Olive's sugar daddy of the time, has to leave town. Um, he has some business to tend to, so he puts uh, his best man Cheech on it. Cheech, played by Chaz. Pomegranate. Pomegranate. Palmentary. Palmentary. Um, so he's just there basically to keep an eye on it, and he is not happy to be there. And they even send a script home with him, and he's reading over lines with Olive uh, after the first rehearsal goes a little bit. Uh, leaves some to be desired for the director, David. Yeah. Uh, this is – and I know we're making it all sound very charming, but the problem is that these people are pretty horrible. Yes. Uh, all of them are just – pretentious and selfish and just looking out for themselves and not in an entertaining way uh even the 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 poor guy that suffers the fat shaming throughout the movie i mean he's also kind of a sleazeball as we come to learn oh, later yeah. later on uh everyone anything, has their ulterior motives yeah if anything you can give cheech i guess some credit because he's a thug and he's kind of a violent uh, bully, but he's pretty straight about who he is from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So I'll give, I don't know if the credit goes to Palminteri for, for the performance, for deciding to be that honest with the performance, or if the credit goes to Woody Allen in that instance for giving some shade to his character. Uh, but if anything, it just makes the rest of the characters even more noticeably uh, just shitty. unlikable and shitty. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you're supposed to be rooting for Cusack. That's the problem. Yes. But again, he's just kind of in the first ten minutes of the movie, just kind of compromised all of his integrity. Right, he sold out very easily with no real reason. And it's blood money he's using to finance this. And he film. knows this, yes, and he's he's okay with it. Um, again, Cheech and Olive read over the lines at uh, home. It's really painful to sit through and listen. And um, the sassy maid comes back in. What Venus? Venus comes back in and says, mm, "The real people I feel sorry for is who's going to pay to see this." Um, she on snaps her fingers and then walks away. <laughs> During rehearsals, tensions build between Helen and Eden. Helen, you know, is the seasoned vet here. She doesn't want to take no shit from anybody. She looks at Eden and said, "Who'd you beat, kid?" And uh, she threatens to kill her dog at one point, which is which shame on you. It's an overreaction, but at the same time, Woody Allen is playing with uh, he's painting on uh, with really broad strokes. You could almost sense that he has some sort of. Uh, vendetta against broadway it almost feels like the kind of movie that a guy that wasn't allowed to direct a play wrote <laughs> all his all the people all in the, in the play the actors the director the producer the financiers they're all just these caricatures you know it's like when you hear the story from somebody and they're only telling you his their side of the story and then there's their version of the story everybody else is an idiot and everybody else is terrible uh julian the the producer the head of the studio i was just surprised he didn't have like a giant groucho marx cigar <laughs> the whole time <laughs> yeah. there's also conflict with olive during the play because he tries to shorten her lines which 
at this point too, it is kind of like the Selena Gomez thing of today of the, the starlet that gets way too far ahead of themselves. It's like, who the fuck are you to question what the director wants to do? Right. But he ends up backing down because, uh, Cheech goes like, well, listen, I'm here to watch over her and make sure that she's always on stage. So Again, integrity compromised in like less than five seconds. He folds like a chair. He eventually gets fed up with it, and I can't tell you know, what's getting the better of him. I think it's his humility. He has no problem selling out, but at the same time, um, humility is the wrong phrase, his ego, because they're trying to make too many changes to his work, and he wants it made, but he wants it made his way, so he's just, I quit. And him and Helen set off for a stroll together. This scene reminded me a lot of, because uh, they're walking through the park in New York City, uh-huh. reminded me a lot of Almost Famous with William Miller and uh, Lady Goodman, Penny, at the end of the movie after her Quaaludes overdose, except without any of the charm. <laughs> I thought you guys say it reminded you of Dave. Even though the walk that they take on Dave, I think it's at night. It's not really... Like, Just specifically the, the scene in Almost Famous is shot fairly similar. Oh. Yeah. Well, I don't remember that far. The crowbar, Cameron Crowe. <laughs> yes. Because Dave isn't been pathetic and affable enough at this point, <laughs> confesses his love for Helen, who, again, you can just hear Woody Allen's arms flapping in an upward motion behind the camera. Bigger. Bigger. <laughs> and she goes for it, but you and I were just kind of... Eh. It's uncomfortable to watch at a certain point. Yes, and it's funny because if he was trying to go for uncomfortable anyway... Because it's always uncomfortable to see a man in a relationship going after a woman uh, and just basically deciding to cheat mm-hmm. or trying to, and then this woman like shutting him down and, and so forth. You can do that without turning it into this this just farce. Yes, because she is really she's rejecting him, but in such a clownish way that you're not really sure what's going Don't on. Don't speak. It, yes, which that takes us back to that first quote uh, of that review. Yes, um, and that becomes basically her catchphrase of the mm-hmm. film. She just, you know, he wants to say more, and um, I guess she's feeling it too, but is trying to refute it just due to... Well, this, uh, I don't want to go as far as saying that this movie paints women in a, a, a terrible light, because really it paints everybody in a terrible light, but it could be that the worst character among the worst characters is Diane Wee's character, because she is, uh, so she's not talented, we, we see her act, and I would say... She is as bad as as Jennifer Tilly's character is supposed to be in the sense that when I see her, I don't buy anything that she's saying. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, of course, that's also the fault of the play not being fully explained to us. But I don't see much of a difference between her performance and Jennifer Tilly's performance. So she's not talented. She acts, however, as entitled as a person who would be really talented would be. uh, But worse, she's really manipulative. And really what she's doing here is she's stringing John Cusick along. Yes. So Because he's the director and because it's clear that she wants to use him for another play afterwards. Right. And even, even the, in the Leslie Mann play, complex. Wow. Now I'm seeing this movie in a completely different light. <laughs> John Cusick is uh, John Apatow. But, but she gets a lot of rewrites out of him, basically, just by, by being sympathetic towards him and going and having drinks with him and strolling in the park and all that stuff. Yes. Um, so the next scene we go to David brings Ellen, his wife to set, um, I believe it's his birthday. Uh, is that when it's his it's birthday? It's his birthday yet? No, I think the birthday is like a different Okay. Day. They're, they're really close together, but he brings his wife to the set for the first time. And basically this is where we have Eden and Olive arguing about dialogue on stage. And it's where Cheech pipes in. Cause he's been sitting there doing the crossword, you know, for how many weeks on end. And he's also read over the script and he basically says, 
you know, this should be changed in the story. And everyone agrees with Cheech, even his wife, Ellen. So David, of course, quits again. He quits again. Uh, I don't think it's his wife, though. I think that you just assuming that because it's the 20s, everybody was married. I am. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> you know. No, because at some point later on, she says something about how he's never wanted to get married. Mm-hmm. And so I'm assuming that that means that they're not married yet. I don't know where this is coming from. I'm just assuming everyone's married. I, every time that I see an old timey movie, I the, also I assume that they're complex. I'm telling they're, you, they're married and they're not having sex. And they and I don't sleep know how in separate kids, beds. <laughs> yes, they're wearing their long nightgowns. America's I mean, great. When we see <laughs> when we see John Cusack like earlier in the movie, and uh, he wakes up from a nightmare, what, he's wearing this ridiculous clothes to to bed. Like he has like a wife beater that. Yeah. transforms into some sort of skirt uh I, I don't care who the production designer was uh that movie that's that did not exist it is like a nightgown yeah that he's wearing um interestingly enough and as i've spoken about marital vows and you know everyone being married <laughs> from this this segues into warner purcell and olive somehow just hitting it off i'm not sure what the fuck they have in common you know i kind of look at them like uh you well know, she she tells him that she's noticed uh he has a big appetite yeah, and so it's even it, even fat shaming by default. <laughs> See, even when, when well, even when they go to shack up, he, uh, like a chicken bone falls out of his pocket, yes. and he continues to eat it. And she's like, "Ooh, a little poultry." Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, but seriously, like, what do they talk about? And when they're not having sex, I I don't know. You could, based on how this movie depicts everybody else, you could also assume that she's just. She just wants to do it because she see she sees him as a way to advance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is the lead male actor in the play, so of course you shack up with him, then you have an opportunity to move up. Uh, it's following in the footsteps things. of Helen Sinclair, the celebrated Broadway actress, exactly, who's shacking up with the writer just to advance her career. Uh, we're at the local club that evening uh, for David's birthday um, as it moved along, and he sees Cheech there, um, and he goes to apologize to him after a few drinks. And Cheech is there with third-time contrarian's guest, as it were, uh, De- Debbie Mazar. She unlocked the achievement. She did. Because I don't know. We need to think about that. But has there been anyone else who's been in three movies we've done? I don't think so. Who would have said something by now? Uh, maybe Judy? No, Judy Greer's only in two, right? She's mm-hmm. not in Three Kings. Or is she in Three Kings? Who's having sex with George Clooney at the beginning of Three Kings? I think that is Judy Greer. Oh, then Judy Greer unlocked it last episode. She did, and we missed out on it. That's all right. You know, the achievement is there for everybody to achieve. The Contrarians Hall of Fame. Yep. They're at the top of it right now. Kevin James will be the next to join the Three Peters. <laughs> yes. So he apologizes, and Cheech, you know, has him sit down. He orders him a beer, and he starts going over, you know, things that should be changed in the play. But he's doing it so nonchalantly because he doesn't realize, you know, that he has this skill for it. And... David, you can already see the gears turn in his head that I'm going to steal this fucker's ideas. Uh, yeah. Uh, clearly, at least at this point, Cheech, once again, being the most, uh, the least shady character in the movie, even though Despite, he is, uh, this, he's yeah, in the mob yeah, who kills people. But he, he's just talking. He's, he's not really, he has no interest in being in show business, mm-hmm. which leads to, to him just being very open about his ideas and, and, wowing john cusack with with everything he's saying you know the relationship between david and helen is kind of reaching its climax no pun intended um in which he's trying to tell her that you know after all these rewrites because him and cheech work together on the script and everyone loves the new work on it um and he wants to tell helen you know it wasn't myself that did it 
but he basically turns it into him saying like he never knew how much she could motivate him and just a bad excuse to try to shack up with her even though she has him wrapped around her finger at this point and she exclaims it's the only quote i wrote down from the movie that the cocoon is open and then embraces him with open arms yeah it really uh as unlikable as the uh, john Cusa character is so uh it's around this point in the movie that i started feeling uh that this was also some sort of uh a it's just embracing the focus group culture, mm-hmm. you know, because Alan never shows us what the original script was, what the original show was. We never can really quantify how much it changed and whether Cheech's suggestions were any good, right? We just take his word. But the the point is that John, C- John Cusack is beaten down into changing his play. Yeah. So it might have been a work of art, like pure genius, and yet because he keeps taking suggestions from everybody else and, and – forced into taking these suggestions uh, in, in some cases, we, we will never get to see the original vision that he had as an artist. It's exactly what happened in The Player. It's like you Hollywood screenwriters out there that have a good idea, don't worry because it's all going to get changed and you're just going to have to deal with it. Right, but this, but Woody Allen portrays it as like this is something for the good. You know, yeah. it's, it's a good thing that this happened. The, the play stank and now because everybody started – uh, putting their finger putting in the pie. Finger. Exactly. Now it's it's a better thing, you know, because at the end of the day, spoiler alert, the play is a huge success because of all the changes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but that's not, that's kind of, again, irresponsible. In, in I, I mean, I want to say, Woody Allen, how many people rewrite their scripts? I don't think anybody, you know, yeah. he's, he's notoriously known for just being his own man. He just, he writes a script, he shoots it, edits it, releases it, moves on to the next one. He, he doesn't have... Other people, unless this was a confession on his side. <laughs> who is your Cheech, Woody Allen? Yes, tell us. Who, who is, is your Helen? Uh, yeah, this scene in particular, hashtag not my Weast. She was very over the top. This was not <laughs> my Diane Weast from Lost Boys or Dan in Real Life. It was uh, it was a bit different. But we go to more rewrites. It's uh, Cheech and David in a bar. And this scene went on. It overstayed its welcome and then some. It seemed like something out of fucking you know, Only God Forgives with Neon Demon. It just... Long static shot on them at the bar and just basically an establishing backstory on Cheech because I guess at this point up until the film, Woody Allen had forgotten to do that. I, I actually, based on how little he cared about backstory before this scene, I would just almost – it makes me want to think that it, this is all improv. Mm-hmm. You know, John Cusack and, and – Despite the fact that we know that Woody Allen is notoriously against ad-libbing and improv. Yeah. There has, there's a moment when uh, Cheech is, is re- rehearsing with Olive. Like he's helping with it's the lines. It's called ad-libbing. Yeah. yeah. And she adds like, aha, I did of her lines. And then Cheech goes like, you can't do that. <laughs> so maybe we're reading it all wrong. And maybe Woody Allen is supposed to be Cheech. I could see that. Yeah. I mean, he's, he, I'm sure he's killed a few people. Because he is the, the towering hero pretty much of the film. Right. Uh but but even then, you know, he's severely compromised when as the story goes on. So it could be a different kind of confession for Woody Allen. It's true. David and Helen's relationship just continues to advance. Uh, he at one point states he's going to tell Ellen. Of course, he doesn't. Um, they are also, you know, schmoozing it up locally. And this was a a lot like the player in mm-hmm. that he's just mm-hmm. kind of out there flaunting his relationship and just shitty people in show business man. yeah the, the only thing that it didn't have uh that the player did was actual cameos mm-hmm. uh i mean we get to see uh harvey again he just has this this little monologue he's talking to somebody who's never who's never been in the movie before that it, is a very uh it's in this scene when they're at that party and that's the like the most telling of 
Helen's relationship with David because he's explaining what her next projects are going to be, and these haven't even been discussed with David. Yet. Right, right, and, and this is happening while they're having sex in the bathroom. Right, she takes him to the bathroom and she's like, "Just take me right now." Uh, get what's happening in this movie? <laughs> I don't understand. Who am I supposed to root for? The the playwright that's cheating on his girlfriend, his longtime girlfriend that's been supportive. Of They've him. been together so long that I just confuse them as spouses. <laughs> exactly, or or the. The conniving, manipulative actress that's just uh, toying with this playwright, just angling for a comeback. I'm blanking on the name, but the she's a lot like the character in um, Valley of the Dolls that can't step aside for Neely O'Hara. Oh, uh, yeah, the the older lady. Yeah. yeah. Only we don't get Diane Weiss's <laughs> rug yanked off in this one. After all these rewrites and you know this play business, it's uh, kind of quick to forget what uh, Chaz Palminteri actually does. Uh, Cheech is in the mob, and he we get a scene of him going up to uh, Warner Purcell, and he says, "You know, you need to quit fucking around with Olive, or I'm going to kill you." And he's like, "I don't usually give warnings," and <laughs> but you're a good actor, <laughs> yeah. And Warner's, uh, I think he says something like, "It's so comical how you could mistake this all." <laughs> and then he grabs him by the jacket collar, and he he understands what's what. <laughs> yeah, Warner played by the way by uh, Jim Broadbent, uh, who. I, I can only imagine how terrible it must have been for him to have to gain all that weight because uh, by now he's he's getting heavier yeah. in the in the story. And while it's we clear, call that the reverse Fassbender. Yes, <laughs> and by the end, I mean I'm sure that by the end he's wearing a fat suit. Yeah, but still he had to. He's he's slimmer when he when the movie starts, and then he starts his face get pudgier, and it's like the sacrifices people make to work with uh, Woody Allen. What was that movie Jared Leto made where he put on all that weight? Chapter twenty four. What? <laughs> Jared Leto? He yeah, lost weight in the, the movie where he had AIDS. Oh, I'm familiar. He won an Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club <laughs> um, where he plays um, Chaplin. What? The guy who – not Charlie Chaplin. The guy who killed John Lennon. Ben Chaplin? Ben <laughs> Blowfish and Funk Chaplin? <laughs> Rory Chaplin. Do you really not know what I'm talking about? No. You're making up movies. No, I'm not. It, he put on like all this fucking weight – like really unhealthily and like to the point where he was like bound to a wheelchair by the time the movie was like rapping <sighs> little come on it's him and so he originally treated it i've only seen clips from it but you can tell he thought that's what he was going to win the oscar for that not to not because has it has it happened since i don't even know if De Niro won the oscar for for putting on all that weight did he win the oscar for a raging bull, raging bull but to, basically to I think be that, continued after I, I would just say after De Niro did it i think that that's well, it you can only do that once yeah well eddie murphy won when he put on all the weight to be you know sherman Clark and Nutty Professor. Yeah, but that's different because he was also playing different characters. It so. was. It was. Yeah, that was a once-in-a-lifetime performance yeah. in that film. So the play opens in Boston, spreading across the board. Uh, in Boston, Olive, you know, um, gets a bit of the hunger, no pun intended, and brings Warner back to her room. Um, and this this scene was just a bit too hokey, you know, considering the serious subject matter we've been dealing with thus far. It's just like... Whoa, I know. I'm cheating on my boyfriend. It's an infidelity fun. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like road trip. It's just like, eh, I guess this is supposed to be funny. At the end of the day, what you're doing is really wrong. So <laughs> Yes, everybody, because by now, Broadbent, Warner, he's, uh, he's fully aware of everything. He knows that she's... He knows he could die. Yes, but also, I mean, yeah, she may be dating a gangster, but she is dating someone. I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what the guy does for a living. It's still wrong for you to go after this guy's girl. So in a way, if anything happened to Warner, it's, he had it coming. Mm -hmm. uh, but not just that. You're putting the play in danger. You're, you're the lead actor. 
you know, if Cheech breaks her legs, then the show's done. <laughs> yeah. It, it, but he doesn't care. No. Uh, it, 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 he, he lets himself be dragged into her room, and then he has to hide in the closet when other people come in. Yeah, he hides in when uh, Mr. V shows back up to the film, and he knows something's afoot, but, you know, he's not able to confirm it. Uh, she makes him climb out the fire escape, and he just winds up back on the street in his britches and his undergarments. Yeah, and then of course all the all the theater goers are just outside. They recognize him, and they don't care that he's not wearing uh, regular clothes. That he's not underwear. They just want an autograph. Marks. So that's yeah, but that's also Woody Allen showing such contempt for New Yorkers. Well, no, I guess it's Boston. Yeah. So it's just him taking a cheap shot at Boston. Yeah, as he would. He's, yeah, because he's a New Yorker, yeah, right? Lifelong New Yorker. New Yorker. Yep. Yeah. Um, so back in New York, Cheech, you know, he is pleased with the way the play is coming along, but he wants Olive out. He says, you know, she's ruining. He refers to it as my play at that point, and that's where David's like, whoa, 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 whoa. But he says, you know, you know it's better without her because she gets uh, basically a freak accident injures her. Oh, yeah. Uh, fat guy. Yeah, squeezes his. <laughs> yeah, backs out into her hand, and yeah, she... She has to go to the doctor, so she misses a performance. So they basically have the understudy, the young boy, fill in for her. And, you know, it's a lot better. And, you know, Cheech recognizes this. And as does David, but Cheech is a bit more, you know, venomous. And Yes, if you thought that he was maybe the one person you could root for in this movie, then you're wrong. Takes it all away. He he believes this is his play now and this is his destiny. So he takes Olive out to his, you know, his local killing pole. And yeah, we've shoot. seen him kill somebody earlier in this this. Spot. Yeah, because we had to get the establishing shots and realize when he dropped her off there, like, oh no, he's gonna kill her. Uh, he tells her she's a terrible actress and then shoots her dead. Yeah, and really, I feel bad, and and it made me a little angry because. I mean, Olive wasn't perfect, but if there was one person to truly root for, it was her. I was just about to say that because she's the true rags to riches story. Right, in the film. and she was trying. Yeah. Everybody else is kind of like coasting along, trying to to make everybody else work for them. But Olive was the only one that was really trying really hard to to just do her part. And Valley of the Dolls, I think, is a fair comparison too. A lot like Sharon Tate's character in that, where she's trying really hard, but everyone else around her is just giving her so much shit. Yeah, nobody takes her seriously. They yeah. just know that she's the. She just got in because she had an, uh, she had help from her boyfriend. Yeah. In. Or husband. I don't know. It was the 20s. It was. And also, I, 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 because I think this already happened, but there's you can't even root for uh, John Cusack's girlfriend slash wife uh, because... Oh, that's coming up. Oh, that's coming up? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you thought Mary Louise Parker, or at least young Mary Louise Parker, was the <laughs> one you could get behind. Before um, she got into the weeds business. So David gets... <laughs> David gets wind that uh, Olive is dead, and immediately he knows what happens, and he goes to confront Cheech, and he says, you know, she was going to ruin my play, and they basically get into it. And David, I think, at this point kind of oversteps his bound, and Cheech has to put him in place and suns him, grabs him by the collar, and just says, you know, basically stay the fuck out of my way, and then tosses him down on the ground. Yeah, well, then he tells him, yeah, you're right, because I remember now how this leads into the next scene. He tells him, basically tells him, you're not so high and mighty. Yeah. You're talking about being a good human being and how I'm a monster, but uh, what are you doing with with Helen Sinclair? And that does segue immediately. The next shot is him confessing to uh, Ellen Mar Mary Louise Parker that you know he's been uh, cheating on her, and she, at this point, explains you know that she has known and she's been good with it because she's been shacking up with Sheldon Flender, played by uh, Rob Reiner, who I guess that was the closest thing to a cameo that we got in the movie, a sustainable cameo, because he, he appears early, but not enough to really do anything outside of just have a few lines. Right, he's in that group conversation, one mm -hmm. of those uh, classic 
really annoying uh, Woody Allen things where he just has a bunch of actors speaking over each other. So you're like, you spend five minutes trying to decipher what the hell the conversation is about. <laughs> and, but do you see Rob Reiner? It's, it's like a, a shot that keeps moving. Mm-hmm. One of the rare shots in this movie that moves. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you see Rob Reiner kind of like come in and out of the frame. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, uh, David's a bit taken aback by this. At the same time, you know, he can't feel bad about it he, he just doesn't want any of the gruesome details so she basically moves out to live with sheldon rob reiner for a little bit during all this the play is going exceptionally well it's getting well received everywhere it is especially with olive out of the picture everything's going perfectly um can't say the same for things in cheech's life though because uh nick mr v figures it out confronts him in a horse stable and i couldn't tell if this was an intentional or just so it was blatant a homage to the godfather <laughs> oh uh, no it was just a callback to the to the horse reverse uh. <laughs> the hoarders yeah but so much of you know the the mob scenes of this movie felt like just woody allen watched the godfather the afternoon before he shot it and he's like i want to do that that yeah. looks good those are gangsters, right? Let's just have James Conn show up for no reason. <laughs> so he confronts him, and Cheech is, you know, visibly shaken. He gets out alive from that incident. He's, I, I'm going to go find out who did it. Um, at the theater, I, I assume it's that same night. Yeah, it does same night. And actually, you know, it's really dumb because at first I was like, how did they find out? But then somebody else says it, and it's like he killed her in a spot that was known for being his spot. That's yes. what he took people to. So he may be a great writer, but he's not a smart human. <laughs> no. Um, so the other henchmen from uh, Mr. V show up at the theater to kill Cheech. They run around the theater and they get back behind the the curtain, as it were, which I guess is supposed to be a big metaphor that you know the bad stuff happens behind the curtain. Yes, it's all behind the scenes. Yes, where, you never know where the blood is shed. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, Cheech is shot dead and killed. Uh, not before though he can make his last alteration to the play in which the main character says that she's pregnant, and that should be the final line of the uh, the play. Yeah, and, and John Cusack, he's, he's lying there next to him tr- trying to uh, bring him back and tries to say something, and, and Cheech's last words are, no, don't speak. <laughs> As he falls into the sweet abyss that is the afterlife. Such a cheap joke to end the life of one of the most important characters in the movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess he still gets a better send-off than Olive, who gets killed basically off-screen. Yeah, it just felt like uh, it felt like for how they built Cheech throughout that that he would have had more of a hero's death or more of a redeeming death. He gets killed like a punk. Yeah, he he gets found out, and then like an idiot, he races to the one place where they would be looking for him, Mm -hmm. which is the the opening Broadway night of the play, and then and then he doesn't really put up that much of a fight Mm -hmm. when, when he gets shot it's uh yeah it was very disappointing he should have had like a death scene like randy quaid in independence day right where he's there to just redeem and you know save the day he uh he kills them all because here he takes one of the guys down but then the other one gets away instead he just fucking dies like leo in the Departed. it's like what did you actually do for us nothing it it was just you have to uh leave it all up to marky mark to uh, clean up after you (laughs) which oh god that would have been awesome if mark Wahlberg showed up to finish this movie hey what happened? <laughs> After this, you know, everything's great. The play is going to go, you know, global. It's going to be a huge thing. But I think David, after watching a man die in his arms, is just kind of out of the game. Takes him a bit out of, you know, as understandably it would, the glitz and glamour of show business. And he just shows up outside of Sheldon's apartment, basically confesses his love to Ellen. Yeah. Uh, she. There's this weird, awkward, long conversation between the, uh, Rob Reiner and Mary Louise Parker, 
who are like on one apartment mm-hmm. you know, out of one window. Then John Cusack gets in the street. This, and then this, the stereotypical New York neighbor across the exactly, way. Exactly, who has like has something to say about everything they're they're saying. And so there's this long discussion about sex and and it was like, Isn't the movie over? Why are we still talking about this? <laughs> yeah, it went on a bit too long and especially for the way it ended, it just he could have just said, Hey, come down and she does and she says, I'm still in love with you and he asked her to marry her or uh, ask her to marry him. Um and that she says yes, and that just ties it all up. He, he David says, did not deserve that ending. Well, but but even more so, it's just disappointing because really, it, it just like I told you, like that would scare me off show business mm-hmm. if I was talented or not. You, you know whether I was talented or not. It would just the, and and you would think that oh well, Woody Allen knows because he's been around for a long time, and uh, it just ends with him saying, "I know two things. One is that I love you, and the other one is that I'm not an artist." Mm-hmm. He just put on like a massively successful production, and maybe he got a little help from Cheech. Yeah. It, it, but I mean, being a director is also knowing which suggestions to take and, and when to put your foot down. And as many flaws that he has, and you know, I don't like the focus group approach that they, that they take to the making of this play. There are moments when John Cusack actually shows leadership. Yeah. And and he did pick the rest of the cast. I think that maybe he was not a superstar. He was not great. But the seed of, of, of something that could grow into being a, a master playwright was And it there. was his first big go that we've been Right. It believe. was his first time as a director. Yeah. It was like, you have to let people grow. You have to give them a chance. But Woody Allen's like, nope. You know what? People helped you. You better get out of the game. It's almost like he's trying to weed out the competition. <laughs> and then they just kind of walk off on the, on the main street, as it were. And, and, and what's he going to do with his life now? Again, we have as many questions as we did at the beginning of this. Yeah, we didn't know anything about him. More importantly, what happened to Edie Falco, who played Laura, his assistant? Well, she went on and became a nurse, apparently. She did, after marrying Tony Soprano. Yes. She she got in deeper with the mob, and then and then she became a nurse. After her time on Bullets Over Broadway, <laughs> she realized she had to get deeper in. It just kind of ends. It just ends. As, as somebody that's an aspiring... Uh, artist i guess it just it's funny that the movie no matter what the movie does it just manages to like be Mm off-putting so when i when the movie opens and i see john cusack screaming i'm an artist i'm instantly turned off i'm like what a jackass (laughs) the movie ends and he's like the one thing i know is that i'm not an artist i'm like what a fucking pussy (laughs) go go back in there and fight for your vision and make another play and keep making them so it's just it's just disappointing no matter which way you take it and i think that's just all about woody allen really having too much bitterness towards the system Mm -hmm. and just being too interested in taking cheap shots instead of actually crafting a story about the human spirit and what it takes to succeed in show business and he's not petty enough that he passed out the opportunity to get a cheap shot in on Boston. Oh, well, yeah, no. Everybody that's involved here just, just gets one. Are we ready for real talk? After a beer, yes. Agreed. And you see, you're living out the exact same pattern your mother lived out with your father. I am? Pray tell. In some way, you're trying to relive it. And in the process of reliving it, correct it. As if that were possible. Ha! It don't say ha. I don't, don't say ha. I added that. What do you mean you added that? You I ca- added are you allowed it. To I do added that? it. We're allowed to add things. How could you just add something? You're allowed you to add that. things. It's called ad-libbing. 
You can't do that. I can do that. What do you know? You don't know nothing. Shut up and read. I think the whole thing stinks. I think I... you're a degenerate zombie. Shut up and read. Shut up. You shut up and read. Just shut up. You shut up. You're lucky you're Nick's girl. You're lucky you're an idiot. What endeavors you to concoct a theory so tenuous? Mm-hmm. That show pities the both folks who are gonna have to pay to see this play. Okay, real talk. Take us away. All right, so Bullets Over Broadway is exceptionally difficult to be negative about, uh, but it was released on October 14, 1994. I always find it funny when movies like this have a release in one of the more obscure places in the world because typically it'll be like released in New York and then wide release. Right. Uh, it was released on September 4, 1994 in Venice and then released <laughs> Uh, everywhere, uh, United States at least, October 14th. Uh, budget of $20 million, which I commented would seem pretty small for the parties involved, but also, as you stated, it's not like the sets were very grandiose or anything like that. Well, also, everybody takes pay cuts just to work with Woody Allen. So. Yeah. Box office return of $13.4 million, so it didn't set the world on fire the box office. It did pretty much clean up uh, some Oscars, though. Mainly Diane Weist, uh, who did win Best Supporting Actress uh, at the Academy Award. Academy Awards. Um, additional Oscars that the film were nominated for included uh, Best Supporting Actor for Chaz Palminteri, uh, Jennifer Tilly, which I guess until we did this, I had no clue was ever an Oscar nominee. Yep. And of course, Woody Allen for Best Director. Was he at the Oscars that year? <laughs> I think the only time that he's been at the Oscars that I know of uh, was after 9 11. Yes, mm-hmm. when he did that monologue, which yeah. was amazing. Yeah. Um, best Original Screenplay. Best production design, best costume design, so on and so forth. Um, directed, of course, by Woody Allen, written by Woody and Douglas McGrath, was recently in the past few years converted into a stage musical. I, I that I didn't know. Yeah. And before we go to yours, not too much trivia, nothing too crazy. Uh, but what I did find that was interesting was that it was the first film directed by Woody Allen not to feature uh, Louise Lasser, Diane Keaton, or Mia Farrow. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh. I, I mean, I guess that makes sense. But I think that that came, like, towards the end of a Diane Keaton run. Because I know he did, uh, oh, what is it called? Uh, Manhattan Murder Mystery. I remember if that was before or after uh, Husbands and Wives. But the one's Mia Farrow. The other one's Diane Keaton. Uh, I mean, he got Diane West yeah. here. So My Woody Allen knowledge is pretty limited. This uh, this is my first time watching this tonight, um, which I really liked. Like I told you, um, Midnight in Paris has been the only one that I've really seen. I, I have not seen Annie Hall, so I understand that's like sacrilege. <laughs> but with what else I've seen, uh, Midnight in Paris was it. But th- this is really good. A lot of it had to do with the individual performances. But uh, was there anyone that did not like it? There was. There are two uh, negative reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, and one of them doesn't have a quote, and it doesn't have even like the, a link to the, the review. person hated it so much that they <laughs> just, just said like, green, green splotch. Just green, and then they killed him. Because there's no way, like, I even looked up for the author. I was like, maybe the link in Run Tomatoes is broken, but you can mm-hmm. find this guy's website. Nope. Done. I, I kept doing, like, the Bulls of Broadway search for reviews, and it kept giving me Bulls of Broadway and Broadway. So uh, <laughs> that's when I saw the, the picture of uh, Zach Braff, and I realized, oh, my God, Zach Braff is playing Joel Cusack's character. I don't know. It could be. Let's be open-minded. It, no. I mean, I, I'm not going to give Trump a chance, and I'm not going to give Zach Braff a chance. <laughs> but you're a big Scrubs fan, aren't you? Yeah. Well, it, then. JD works. I've also seen Garden State, and I saw the trailer for his <laughs> other movie. Uh, I told you, he has a new movie uh, coming up 
director. I don't, I don't think he's in the movie. He's not in the trailer, certainly. Where uh, Morgan Freeman, Michael Caine, and uh, Alan Arkin are senior citizens that decide to rob banks to get back at the banks for being evil for this country. Let's move this along. It looks really funny. Okay. <laughs> anyway, the other negative review is from Alex Sandal, and uh, it doesn't even it doesn't link to the review anymore. But at least it has a quote. And the quote is, not wood is worse, but it's nothing to write Hall about. I'm assuming it's supposed to be a reference to any Hall. It's pretty Boo. terrible. Awful. Uh, Alex Sandel from Juicy Cerebellum, by the way. Uh, well, and, there you go. Yeah, and Alex wrote this on February 8, 2004. So he watched the movie like 10 years later. All right. Um, yeah, great movie. Very entertaining. Uh, I need you to try to explain the ending to me, though, because I was a bit confused by that. Uh, which part? Like, oh, they just everything works out, and they just get back together. Uh, well, it's just because she. I'm assuming that she realizes he's a changed man. He, he. he so was he standing in front of himself? Like, was he in his own way for the duration of the movie? Or well, he just realizes that he has no talent, and uh, and he just tells her. I think that the admission when he tells her, well, he asks her. And it's one of my favorite quotes in the movie when he's like, were you in love with the artist or were you in love with the man? And it's a question that's asked in the movie several times mm-hmm. by different characters. He he asks Diane Wiss at some point and she kind of like sidesteps the question. But here he asks Ellen and she says, well, I I could love a man that's not an artist, but I could never lo- love an artist that's not a man. And then which is just basically the crux of his character. You know, he's he chooses to be a good man because he realizes what show business was doing to him. And he also chooses to acknowledge that he's not talented. I mean, everything good that happens to that play is because everybody else, not because of him. So he's living this fantasy life of what he thinks he wants, but then when he realizes that he really has no talent, he sees that it was like in front of him all along type of thing. Yeah, but also at some point he mentions that his that she he had dragged her out of Connecticut to come to New York to pursue his dreams. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when he abandons them, I guess the implication is that they're going to go back to Connecticut and just lead the life that she would have liked so and she was just with rob reiner because he gave her the good d yeah i mean she they go on at length about how good he is in bed (laughs) okay so uh, that makes a bit more sense because i was a bit confused because i was still kind of just caught up and it's pretty fast paced it it is and it it doesn't bother me anymore than you would expect yeah it doesn't bother me anymore but it used to bother me i think the first time i saw it because i think you spent so little time with mary louise parker's character that you're not really invested in that relationship Yes. So, so it's kind of like, oh, she gets back together with him, but it's like, who cares? You know, the big realization that also happens in that scene is just him deciding to give up on show business, okay. which I think is the the really cool thing that happens. That he acknowledges that he doesn't have what it takes, and that's something you don't see very often. Yeah, <laughs> at least that you don't see it celebrated. It's supposed to be a happy ending, and it, the happy ending involves him just saying, "Eh, I'm not good enough." Yeah, uh, that's that's really cool. Uh. I don't know if it's not an overly quotable movie. I mean, don't speak, but um, there's still there's some really really funny shit in it. The my favorite part uh, in the whole movie was when um, uh, I want to call him Chess Cheech gets shot dead, and uh, uh, Warren just uh, Warner continues on with his line. <laughs> yeah, he just the, goes all the gunshots. Get, yeah. He watches it happen. And he's like, <laughs> "I'm in the garden," and then just walks on the stage. 
I thought that was brilliant. Which shows really, again, that he has what it takes to be in show business. He has to be like cold-blooded and completely detached from everything else. Because yeah. just like a few seconds before, he's welcoming him. He's like, Cheech, you should be at the front row. My scene's coming up or yeah. whatever. So uh, that was that was really cool. I, I have so many, but I think my favorite scene is always going to be when they're uh, when they both David and Cheech let their guard down and they're when they're working on the at rewrite the bar? at the bar okay yeah I was talking about the- my favorite scene in terms of comedy that scene is fantastic I would in hashtag CC I was just trying to like figure out a way to put a spin on it it is a long shot but it's one of those that like I watch movies sometimes and think like hey, yeah I could be an extra in this or I could do something like that <laughs> um you know, the few projects we've done together and things like that, I feel like, hey, I can do this. But then I watch something like that, and it's like, that is a skill that I would never be able to attain in my life and learn. Not only just the memorization of the lines, but to be in front of just a stagnant camera for that long and to convey such emotion and everything like that. And like on both sides, they're just both oh, of them are both so great. good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they uh Chaz in particular. Well like, yeah, he yeah. gets the bulk of the the backstory and he gets to like peel away another layer and just show you this guy. But just I, like kind of the awe that Cusack's sitting in watching him and listening to oh, him. Oh yeah. Well and how he keeps like because your conversation is fragmented, so they'll talk for a little bit, then they go back to not saying anything, and then because John Cusack keeps trying to build up the courage to ask something else, because mm-hmm. at some point he asks him, Hey, so they say that uh you've killed some people. Yeah. And that takes a moment to get there. Uh well I think my favorite part in that scene is when Cusack starts beating himself down, and and Cheech just goes like, "Hey, no, you wrote a good play. I just made it better, but you you have talent." Yeah, you know, he tries to be nice about it, and that's he tells it, him you just think too much. Yeah, 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 you just think too much. You would get in your own way. That's, yeah, uh, yeah, that was that's really cool. I I like uh, the pretty much any scene that they have at that. Uh, uh, his office in his office when they're playing pool that is a great laugh too he was narrating told me to meet him at his office and it's just the fucking pool hall <laughs> yeah uh because when he goes there that first time and just basically cheech takes the the script from him and he's like just play just play and i'm gonna write it quit looking at me <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh and then of course the third time which is when he goes to confront him after he's killed olive and uh he has that awesome line about how, like, my dad loved the opera, and... <laughs> Did he kill a man once? <laughs> In Palermo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's good. And I actually, I, I like Diane Weist. Uh, oh, yeah, she's great. She's she's awesome. I mean, she's definitely... Out of everybody, she's probably playing the biggest, but that's fine. I mean, that's... Because it fits that character. the character. Yeah. yeah. It was the Roaring Twenties. She does use the word flapper at one point, and I was very <laughs> happy about that. Um, if any complaints... Probably just in life, not this movie, but I could have used more Harvey Firestein. Yeah, yeah. He, I, I was actually glad when he showed up a second time because mm-hmm. I thought we only saw him at the beginning. Yeah. But when he shows up at that party and uh, his final line, because they're talking about how, how young uh, Dan Weiss looks, and it's something like, yeah, the monkey glands work. <laughs> just so happy. When he's, they're having that first back and forth where she's like saying all the accommodations she needs, you know, the biggest room. Uh, all media pictures had to be approved by me, and he's like, "It's not even a question." <laughs> um, yeah, really good. Chaz Palminteri, exceptional. I told, I turned to you at one point. And I was like, "You can clearly see why he got pigeonholed into the mob character because he's so good at it." But I mean, it props to him, but also a lot of that falls back on Woody Allen to figure out how. Was he? I guess I can't remember his filmography. Was he already in that role of being the mob guy in every movie prior um, to this? I I don't think so. I saw 
because of uh, here's a little bit of Peruvian trivia. Bullets of Broadway, which I was dying to watch, it didn't make it to Peru until like two or three years after its release mm-hmm. date here. So we all knew that Where it was like a the Broadway? big... <laughs> Where is the mobster's girlfriend? <laughs> the bottom of the river. Uh, dude, that's not a great line. And I can't quote it because I remember the exact... But uh, he's talking to his producer, John Cusack, telling him that they need to recast. And, uh, and they're in Boston. And the producer is like, no, you know, you cross this guy. You end up at the bottom of the of the Hudson. And he's like, and if he finds out when we're in, Bo- when we're in Boston, you end up in the, even worse at the bottom of the whatever, Boston <laughs> River. It's just good. Oh, but, so we got two jabs in Boston. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, but... Anyway, it opened late, so by the time that it opened, uh, I had already seen Chas Palminteri in The Usual Suspects, uh-huh. where he's the main cop doing yeah. the interrogation. So to me, he was the cop from The Usual Suspects. I didn't see him, and now he was playing a mobster. But I guess if you were introduced to him, to him uh, with Bullets Over Broadway, then you would say, oh, it's the mobster from Bullets Over Broadway playing a cop. <laughs> I mean, Chas Palminteri, I've never really seen him in anything that I was like, oof. Uh, um, in terms of, it. have you seen the Robert De Niro movie, A Bronx Tale? No. Okay. Well, he plays a mobster. Okay. Uh, Palminteri does. Uh, De Niro plays a bus driver, I think, and they they're basically battling for the soul of uh, De Niro's son. It's really, really good. But that's based on a play that Chess Palminteri wrote. Nice. That was a one man play, and De Niro saw it, got the rights, and made it into a movie. Very cool. Yeah, I know. I was like really excited when I saw it. Like I told you when we were watching it, he's. Excellent in running scared as the crooked cop. Mm-hmm. Um, he also he's really good as Shorty, his reoccurring in Modern Family, which it, that is so much cooler to me now <laughs> that his wife is Jennifer Tilly. Why is she in? Oh, she's his wife on Modern Family. Oh, is she? I yeah. don't remember that. Yeah. So oh, that, that, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but outside of that, at the same time, I say all that to say, you know, it really comes back. And my second almost famous reference, not even by uh, design. Um, you can have a lot of skill, but at the end of the day, it's also going to take a really tremendous director to get that out of you. And I'm not going to say that Chaz Palminteri's body of work is as deplorable as Kate Hudson's was following <laughs> Almost Famous. But at the same time, you know what I'm trying to get at, like in terms of a director getting something amazing out of an actor or an actress. Yeah, it just the material, I guess, you know, you can just get, you can shine. I mean, even take Jennifer Tilly, and I really, I'm not, I don't follow her filmography enough to just even be able to be 100% accurate with this statement, but I will make it anyway, which is... We can watch Bound. We don't have to record an episode for it, but we can just sit down and watch it together. That would be awkward, though. That's true. (laughs) That would be more awkward than watching it in the theater. Yeah. I mean, I can watch it now and you can just leave. I'm I'm, I'm trying to think of, like, if I've ever watched Bound with anybody other than the time that I saw it in theaters. In theaters, it's dark, and you, you just hear, like... The sticky floor. <laughs> uh, that's a great movie, though. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but, okay, so Jennifer Till and Bound, Jennifer Till and Bullets of Broadway. And I think that's, like, where, I mean, you know, she's, like, what, in Liar Liar. Uh, and she's in, you know, the Chucky movies, which I haven't seen. But it's not, she's she's on a different level in this movie. This movie, yeah. she's fantastic. And she really, I really do feel bad for her because her character for her character yeah she's she's annoying and she's obviously not talented but she really is trying and the fact that she manages to create sympathy for that character i think that's that shows a lot you know uh and and same thing for chas palminteri you know he's you know i don't worry about diane weiss or john cusack they're like oh yeah they have so many movies they're known for Mm -hmm. and obviously they're just here being as talented as they are in all those other movies but when you get to chas palminteri or jennifer tilly you're like wow why didn't it they end up in like more stuff, you know, because they were so great here. And uh, 
I don't know. I mean, you know, they could just it could you could chuck it up to like bad choices afterwards. You know, they, maybe they didn't pick the right projects. But then again, the usual suspects was great. Yeah, and uh, I think is specifically with Palminteri, I think it was just kind of what we're talking about. He just kind of got shoeboxed into a, a position. You, you can just play the heavy. Yeah, yeah. And when a lot of people make a career out of that, um, with her, not entirely sure. I'm still with other movies I've seen her in. I can't decide whether this was you know a lot of really good if this was a crow-esque performance by woody allen and getting a great performance out of her <laughs> or you know uh what have you but yeah she's she's great she's funny she's uh likable and um yeah a lot of her dialogue is really good and her delivery and presentation of that character is fantastic uh yeah when she's first meeting everybody she's like charm charm <laughs> just you know it's just you're if you're funny then that works if you don't have it then that's it's not gonna have you ever seen anything. Kristen, Kristen Wiig's impression of Jennifer Tilly? No. Uh, that sounds mean-spirited. <laughs> I haven't even seen it, but it just sounds terrible. It, it's it's good. Now, so, I've, I've forgotten that he wrote this with Douglas McGrath. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, because usually he does write by himself. It's funny because uh, my all-time favorite Woody Allen movie is Annie Hall. This would be number two or number three with uh, Everyone Says I Love You being like the other two or three. And... Uh, but Annie Hall, it's also co-written. He he wrote it with, I think, Marshall Brickman. And then everyone says, I love you. I think it's just him by himself. But that's still, like, you know, I mean, I love most of his movies. Yeah. And But it's funny that the top ones are ones where he was collaborating with someone else. Maybe that adds, like, a little extra. A lot of people always complain about Woody Allen being just kind of, like, repeating himself over and over. Uh, which, it's almost like, how can you avoid that happening when you're making a movie a year? Yeah. When you're releasing that many. There's not... To a certain extent, there's not something necessarily wrong with a director having a formula. Right. You have – this is what you're doing. You have a subject that you stick to and – PTA you, has a formula and fucking <laughs> – his movies are incredible. Yeah. I, it's just uh, – I think that sometimes maybe it's not fair to ask of someone to do something that they just don't want to do. Yeah. You know, it's like he's not interested in making a sci-fi movie because I remember somebody doing the – making that argument it's like somebody should make should give Woody Allen like a sci-fi script or a western <laughs> script just to like make him break out of this pattern that he's in okay but he's not interested in that yeah. and he's not like a fucking machine that you're just optimizing for entertainment he is an artist that has something to say and what he has to say aligns with these type of movies you're not gonna give fucking Michael Bay a fucking drama about AIDS <laughs> like you know it's listen he uh, he had a drama about bodybuilders and uh uh painting games fantastic yeah I was... in the immortal words of contrarian's guest eddie Strait, i don't know if there's such a thing as destiny but if there is it was for michael bay to make that movie <laughs> <laughs> now what i find particularly awesome and fascinating about this uh we mentioning uh weist uh jennifer tilly uh paul Monteri, uh even uh mary louise parker she has a really weird I, I can't tell how that character was written what it was supposed to be but her coyness kind of commands presence when she's on screen. I say all that to say John Cusack is like one of the most polished actors of the last 30 years is overshadowed by everyone in this movie. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, he has... I think intentionally so, but it's right, still... Right, right. Yeah. It, it is it's definitely by design. Uh, but, it, right, when you think of Bullets of Broadway, you don't think of John Cusack. You think of Chas Palminteri and you think of Diane Weiss and Jennifer Tilly. Yeah. But he is there in almost every scene and he's driving things and just being perfect. The problem is that the, the role he's requires... He's the main character. Right. Yeah. The role requires him to be 
just a putz and in, submissive in, in submissive be overshadowed in every scene by everybody else so, yeah uh, but yeah he has all those quiet moments and not just with Tom and Terry but also uh, when he's talking to uh, to Rob Reiner um, mm. there's that scene where they sit down and he's just basically confessing his feelings and all he's doing in that scene is mostly reacting to Rob Reiner's nonsense <laughs> and he's just so good but it's easy to overlook because you're more focused on Rob Reiner being just an idiot and being just very boastful and yeah. he's the one that commands that scene but but John Cusack is the one that really he's doing the hard work because he has to just react to that and and not be over the top so that's that's great and of course you know his scene with Diane Weist every time that he's trying to profess his love she gets remembered because she has a catchphrase and yeah. she gets to like cover his mouth, but he has to react to that. Yeah. You know, and that's actually to me, that has to be harder to be able to react to such an over the top thing while still staying in character and, and making it believable. And yeah. he does. So that, that's pretty amazing. Um, And that truly is the last line that no, don't speak. That's fucking fantastic. The perfect last kind of gag in there. Now, kind of just come back to your point, I can see a lot of that. Again, my knowledge of Woody Allen's filmography is fairly limited, but uh, the movies that he's co-opted with someone to write with, and, and that makes sense too. You know, you got to crack the window in the car every now and then, so it's the type of thing where um, a little change isn't a bad thing. I think I could definitely see that, just having viewed his other movies, having at least a slight outside input can be very beneficial for someone like that. Yeah, he had a pretty awesome run, and I am biased because that's when I started watching his movies in theaters, I think. But that was like in the '90s, uh, when I was just like, I mean, he had it was uh, he had Mighty Aphrodite, which is not a masterpiece in the sense that you know, like Bulls of Broadway or Any Hall or mm-hmm. Everyone Says I Love You uh, are, but but it's still like pretty solid. That's the one with Mira Sorvino. Mira Sorvino won Best Supporting Actress. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably won Best Screenplay. Was at least nominated. But that was like I think that was '95, and then it had like the '90s was when he had uh, Husbands and Wives and. Uh, Manhattan Murder Mystery, like he was on fucking fire. You know, it's like every year you just come out and he he'd have a new movie, and it was like they were funny and they were very interesting. And then towards the end of the decade, I think everyone says I love you. I think it's still nineties, but then it's like the two thousand hit, and he has this stretch of movies that I don't hate, but they're obviously not good. Like if I'm gonna get into Woody Allen, I'm not gonna show you any of like the early two thousands. Well, wasn't uh, uh, Midnight in Paris kind of viewed as kind of a return to form for right, him? Right, his return yeah. to form. But he he's had a few. That's the thing. He's had a few return to forms mm-hmm. over his career. So well, he's been four decades or something. Right. right. Yeah. So you know, everybody's like, oh, he was funny at first, and then he started doing dramas, and the dramas are considered like lesser. And then he comes back with like I don't know which movie, but he comes back with one, and then he goes away again, and he comes back in the nineties with you know this stretch and he goes away again he comes back with match point somewhere in the mid 2000s which mm-hmm. is a drama with uh scarlett johansson and uh jonathan riss meyer okay. just really good nothing funny about it that's just like a full-on <laughs> drama and uh and then he has i think next day he does next year does vicky vicky christina barcelona and maybe he has like a couple off and then he comes back with midnight in paris and then he goes away again i think they're still waiting for his next comeback <laughs> You're a fan of Midnight in Paris, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I love it. I love it. That's that's another one that I would put like really high up there. Uh, I don't know. I I you know there are movies uh, that I feel more comfortable. You know, movies of his that I feel more comfortable showing anybody and saying, "Hey, you love this because it's just so universal, so easy to get, and so funny." My uh, my mom was all I, I guess just because she was far more cognizant of when all that stuff with 
his wife and, and Mia Farrow went down. So I think she was always kind of off put by all that. It's it's a shame because uh, Eddie had the same problem. We just keep bringing, we just make Eddie like the, the phantom <laughs> guest person here. He's he will always be referenced. We need to Skype episode. him in. Yeah, uh, but he he actually told me he couldn't get through any hall because uh, just like all the Woody Allen stuff was just like affecting the way that he watched the movie. There's a scene where uh, in any hall. That's really funny where he's having a flashback and the movie jumps around in time a lot. So he's having a flashback to when he was a kid and how he was always like he had a weird relationship with girls. And you see like the kid playing Woody Allen, Mm -hmm. you know, as a kid and kids in the classroom or whatever. But then at some point, the camera, when the camera pans back instead of the kid, it's Woody Allen as an adult sitting at the desk and he keeps having the conversation with the girls. And it's like it's really funny, you know, because suddenly you see him as an adult still having a conversation with girls. Uh, But... I'm pretty sure that's what Eddie said, that he just found it off-putting. <laughs> yeah. I, I brought all that up to say that was just more to put over Midnight in Paris because I told my mom it was like – because she just said he didn't like – she didn't like the formula of his movies. And th- like to your point is what I was saying about Midnight in Paris. That's – I'm fairly confident you could present that to anybody who has just decent taste in like movies and they would – I mean there's a lot of likable acting in it too, but it doesn't follow a lot of that uncomfortable Woody yeah. Allen formula. And, and I think that maybe for the people that are just – troubled by by his personal life maybe watching the movies where he's not in mm-hmm. it might make it easier you know because you it might make it easier to disconnect yourself from that yeah. whole form of the controversy you know so you have owen wilson as a stand-in there you have john cusack as a standing here uh uh he's had so many people uh fucking kenneth branagh you mm-hmm. know does he's in celebrity and he plays a woody allen character he plays more of a woody allen type than John Cusack here. John Cusack here, you see him a little bit, and then he evolves into his own character. But yeah. uh, Kenneth Branagh, is, it's almost like they told him, okay, you're only allowed to act the way Woody Allen acts. <laughs> and that's just how, and, and the fact that you're not used to seeing Kenneth Branagh behave that way, it's yeah. actually pretty amazing. Um, and then, uh, well, you know, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, I mean, it's uh, Javier Bardem, but he's not even playing the Woody character. He's just like a guy. I told, my thing, I told you about my thing with, all of his other movies. Uh-huh. I had the first thing I ever saw him in was No Country for Old Men. <laughs> I cannot do any of these other movies with him in it, where it's like he can't be like a normal guy. Exactly, he's Anton Chigurh. <laughs> Especially like with all those fucking, uh, he'll do those intense like romance movies. And I, I know the guy's a great actor, but it's just like I'm always just gonna see Quillet. <laughs> um and he also just had the, he was in that movie sean penn made that was supposed to be just dog shit oh I the will. last face that I, I, I will one day see because my girl's in it yeah yeah gotta support her career eventually mm-hmm. she'll make the the complete transition to hollywood and mm-hmm. she'll just be in a transformers movie or something eventually. <laughs> eventually but bringing it back around to that the blue is the warmest color circle uh midnight in paris leah seduz in that that's the first time i ever saw her in a movie who is she uh, she's the girl that works like the postcard stand, and then Owen Wilson meets her again at the end of the movie on the bridge there. Oh, really? Yeah. So she's like a significant character. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. I know she is in a uh, she has a tiny, tiny part in a, a movie that you've definitely haven't seen. Uh, Wes Anderson's fuck. Actually, I don't know which one it is, but she plays like the maid. Is it uh, uh, Budapest Hotel? I think it might be the Budapest Hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My parents really like that movie, and they keep trying to get me to watch it. They don't understand how like I can. How deep the hatred runs. I don't hate Wes Anderson. I, th- this always it always comes back to that. The movies he makes do nothing for me, and my dad in particular doesn't understand how I can say that about an entire body of work. I'm just like none of his movies have ever appealed to me. The closest they've come was Darjeeling Limited, 
in that scene where Owen Wilson <laughs> takes the bandage off his head and says, I still have more healing. I just said, fuck this movie. But, I mean, but that's that's fair because he has a very consistent style. So I could just say, I can see somebody saying his style just doesn't do it for me. And then I'm like, yeah, because that's the same style. Like somebody, if somebody told me Woody Allen movies are not for me because I just don't like his dialogue, his mm-hmm. rhythm, that's, yeah, that's his movies are his movies. Yeah. It's when someone says they're bad because I don't like him. It's like, no, that's not the same thing. Right. It's yeah, like no, Wes Anderson. People confuse that. Probably because I do jokingly talk a lot of shit about his <laughs> movies, but I don't think they're bad. It's just I've watched several of them, and they do nothing for me. Yeah. I, I Actually, the first Woody Allen movie I watched was Husbands and Wives, which is – it's funny. I mean, now that I see it, it's funny, but I it was my first one that I watched, and it was – I was 16, I think. It was like a film school, and they, they – played it for us and i fucking hated it it was just <laughs> because it's it's also a very dark movie and it's a very depressing movie it's about two marriages falling apart and i was not ready for that kind of shit like you know like to see uh uh misery on that level mm-hmm. and even though because there's a constant criticism of woody allen about uh uh just well he writes about rich people in new york and their problems and who gives a shit you know why are they marching <laughs> <laughs> but really, I mean, in the end, there is these are people that have real problems. You know, marriages that fall apart that's, yeah. that that hurts no matter how much money you have. And so, uh, when it, it and it was he was doing this thing that he I think it was the first time that he had done, and it definitely the first time that I'd seen somebody do it like that. Where he was he had the shaky camera, you know, and it's it's shot in the style of a documentary uh, with interviews and stuff. The Bourne cam. But that was before Born. Okay. So before the Born camp, there was the the husbands and wives, the Allen camp, <laughs> and it's kind of you know it's very documentary style because they keep cutting to people like talking. Uh, it looks like they're at a doctor's office and they're just explaining you know what what was happening. But the whole thing, I just I hated it. And I swore off Woody Allen for for a good while. Where I remember my parents would be like, "No, you should watch this movie because this movie's funny," and I would be like, "Nope, I'm not giving him another chance." That was just I too much. Uh, it wasn't pleasant at all. And then I finally watched Manhattan Murder Mystery, which is the complete opposite. It's a movie that's just crowd-pleasing as all hell. And uh, and then I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll keep going. And then yeah. years later, I watch Husbands and Wives again, and it's a fucking masterpiece. Uh, just Not just what it does with the form, where it just really it takes you off guard because you're like, oh, this is not the usual uh, Woody Allen movie, but also just how it explores infidelity and happiness and happiness in relationships uh juliette lewis is in it nice just to show that i think that you how you play uh how many degrees is to kevin bacon is it seven six 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 okay i think it's five to woody allen <laughs> i think you can get because everybody worked with him so yeah. but not kevin bacon oddly enough what a they'll, world they'll make it too easy yes <laughs> that would defeat the purpose <laughs> of the game so on the uh just sidebar on the other side of that um who's a director that you saw like a movie or a couple of movies that started off with, and you were like, "This is fucking great." I'm and here then, for for good. Yeah, and then every and we pick on Nicholas Winding Rafen too much, so he doesn't count. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm, I'm gonna get a lot of hate for this, but Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, I and and there are movies of his that I haven't seen, and everybody always tells me well, you should watch these before you just write them off, and I, I will never write them off because Pan's Labyrinth is amazing. Uh, and it wasn't the first movie of his that I watched, mm-hmm. but it's one of the things where I'm like, okay, if he made Pan's Labyrinth. He could make another movie of this quality again, and I don't want to miss it. Yeah. So every new movie of his that comes out, I watch, and then every time I've just been let down. It's just not for me, but a lot of people like them. So I 
I don't care for either of the two Hellboys. Uh, although, really? yeah, yeah, I'm not not a big fan. Uh, I rewatched the first Hellboy recently because my friend Corey, who's also been in the podcast, uh, fuck Corey, he was talking <laughs> shit about Dark Knight Rises on my Facebook the other day. <laughs> uh, but he he was like, you need to rewatch. Uh, Hellboy, and I think he gave me like the director's cut or something. And I watch, and I'm like, okay, it's not as bad as I thought. Corey he was also, be. Is, he's, he says that about Halloween too, doesn't he? The yeah, director's the director's cut, cut yeah, is okay. better. Changes the movie. Yeah, I don't know. If this changed the movie. It's definitely not. I like superhero movies. I, I, I mean, That's, Hellboy. I can make certainly see that type of thing where if you're not in it by the, like the first 20 minutes, it's just not going to do anything. Yeah, I, I like the cast, but it just wasn't working. And then the second one, I remember being pumped for it because oh the trailer was so good the trailer it. was great and i'm like they've laid the groundwork in the first movie so now we can just really get into it and no it was the trailer it was not as good as the trailer basically mm-hmm. uh they even do this thing that annoys me which is set up stuff for a third movie that of course never happened because mm-hmm. uh, they have that prophecy or something mm-hmm. that, that they mentioned it's there's a whole pivotal scene that happens. i really like that movie but i agree with you on that point i was like is this gonna pay off by the end of the movie or are you just like setting groundwork for a third movie that you don't know if you're gonna get to make you know that's kind of a, a bullshit thing um i can tell you one that you have lasted longer than i did with uh neil blumbach <laughs> you're done you were done after what uh, uh what was the matt damon one uh elysium yep done so okay so you gave him one movie and then yes. you gave up on it <laughs> and because of everything I heard about Chappie. Oh, we will do Chappie uh, in this podcast at some point. It's low enough. I think it's the mid-20s. That being said, it's it was basically everything I heard about it, that was, but District 9 was so fucking good. I, I agree, which is why I, I I will give him at least two more before I'm just, I give up. Because So you get, you're living the, sh- the Shyamalan principle then, uh, if you're giving him that many. Well, but you also oh, think no, Unbreakable is no. good. Unbreakable is great. It's his best. Well... No, no, it is not his best. What is his best? Sixth Sense. <laughs> Science is better than Unbreakable. No, it isn't. Yes. Unbreakable. I said it. Unbreakable, then The Village. Are you being serious? I am being 100% serious. This is real talk, sir. <laughs> Touche. Unbreakable, then The Village, then Science, then The Sixth Sense. Oof. And then it's all shit that you can just rearrange. Although the... the um, the happening is always going to be at the bottom. I just watched Split, and I really don't want to say anything about Split because one, you should watch it, but not don't pay for it. Just wait till it's, it's new. on Netflix. Yeah, um, it's not worth paying for, but it's it's an interesting discussion for when you watch it. And I don't want to spoil it for you. Don't Devil let... Devil is trash. But Devil he... is not really his though. He produced it, but he didn't. I thought that he directed that. Uh-uh. No, okay, no, no, no. he bad. produced it. Uh, uh, okay, then Lady in the Water's garbage. It's not good. But Garbage is Last Airbender and The Happening. Happening's pretty rough. <laughs> <laughs> happening is terrible. Yeah. I, I, you know, I take it back. At the bottom is Last Airbender. The Happening is on top of that just because it's a lot more fun to make fun of The Happening than it is Last Airbender. I would rewatch The Happening with you my buddies. You put The Village over The Sixth Sense. Oh, yeah. The Village is the great. You put The Village over Signs. Yeah. Signs, yeah. Signs is really good, too. And The Sixth Sense is okay. So a plane never flew over their village? I'm sure they had an explanation for it. it <laughs> the it, giant it, iron bird in the sky. Yeah. The um, monsters hide. And then as much and this goes back to the It does the great is that it does the great switcheroo halfway through the movie, which I really like. Which is you think that you're watching a movie about Hawking Phoenix and then halfway through the movie it's like, Oh no, the one that's gonna save the day is a blind girl. 
Isn't it Bryce Dallas Howard? Yeah, but at the time you didn't know that. At the yeah. time she was just a blind girl. Which is why I now have a hard time going back to it. Poor man's Jessica Chastain. <laughs> um, and as, just to kind of tie this together, uh, as much I joke about him a lot on here too, but truthfully Judd Apatow's one also. That at this point I couldn't see myself like getting excited to watch a new movie of his. Uh yeah, I mean, it sucks, but I, I kind of... And it, it's relevant as we head into our uh, 40th episode and a couple of uh, couple episodes, and we, we're going to hit, finally, the Judd Apatow. Something. Uh, something. <laughs> this, this is, is 40. 40. Um, because, also, 40-Year-Old Virgin and specifically Knocked Up were such great movies. Yeah. it. Which, again, so go, it goes back to... Take it back to Woody Allen. To be consistently good year after year... Uh, while at the same time stretching your creative muscles. I mean, you're going to have misfires here and there. Yeah. So, I mean, if he's been making movies for like 30 years, 40 years, however long, and, it, well, he makes movies about what he wants, what he likes, mm -hmm. so there's going to be a similarity. And at the same time, because he doesn't want to get bored, every now and then he'll do something different and try something out, and sometimes it doesn't work. I, I think that at that point, you know, if you've been making this for 40 years and you don't suck at it, you just deserve respect. <laughs> yeah, and that's you know? the thing. I, I, you can joke about fucking Avatar all you want. James Cameron falls in that category, too. It's the same thing. Yeah. You know, it's just like, he doesn't really, it's not that, it, it, I mean, it just, to say that somebody's competent, or to say that somebody it, it gets the job done, yeah. it can come across as just being condescending or being dismissive. But no, there is there is a real uh, worth to that. Yeah. Well, and I guess that's unfair. Fucking Woody Allen and James Cameron are like two of the most celebrated filmmakers <laughs> of all like time. Workman-like movies. Yeah, uh, I was going to but also that that's a good basically to your point about consistency and also with Woody Allen doing what he wants. Woody Allen's never strived to make a movie like Titanic that has like a fucking 8 trillion dollar budget and wants to conquer the world, that type of thing. But in his wheelhouse, I think he is as if not more celebrated by people within the industry than like critics and fans alike. Yeah, well, but it depends because I mean, yeah, when they celebrate, there's also people that fucking really can't get over what happened and hate him too. But. Well, yeah, but but not even that. I think that sometimes just even with his personal life aside, just being Woody Allen having made movies for this long, it just affects him because then he'll make a movie like uh, the one that came out last year. Uh, I don't remember the name, but it had uh, uh, it has. Jesse Eisenberg, Kristen Dunst, Steve Carell. Uh, what's the uh, Carol Ferris from Green Lantern? What's Blake name? Lively? Blake Lively's in it. She's my favorite part of the movie. She's so good. Uh, but anyway, it's a movie that you know. If I made it, it would get some pretty good reviews. Woody Allen makes it, and it was like uh, again, <laughs> you know. And I don't think that's entirely fair. I mean, I think you, you can raise the point of like, well, he's kind of done this before. But not to the point of being dismissive and saying, well, what's the point of even watching this? Mm -hmm. You know, and even worse saying that it's a bad movie. Because for some people, it'll be their first Woody Allen movie. And they'll, they'll that's where that unfair precedent comes in. Right. It's like somebody that's watched his entire body of work, if they're looking for a reason to criticize him, they can just. Where a couple, of, I think, of Scorsese's movies have been judged a bit too harshly. Yeah. I watched Silence, his new movie. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if he got any nominations. I, I I didn't look far enough, but it was all right. I mean, it's always it's, good to sit down and watch a Scorsese movie. It's it, kind of like Shutter Island. Uh, that's not a great movie by any stretch. But if it was some no-name director that that was his first movie, <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Um, all that put aside, we are here to talk about Bullets Over Broadway, and I wholeheartedly agree. I greatly enjoyed that movie and agree with all its praise and thought it was tremendous. Yes. Very good time. Yeah. Uh, it, it was... It was good. Like I said, it was part of that stretch where you were like, wow, he's he's hit his stride and he can't do no wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really I, – it, it's one of those. I mean, going back to like, oh, there's some movies by Woody Allen that I love but I wouldn't show to at least not a first-timer. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one that I'm completely comfortable showing it to someone because I think it's very accessible. And going back even to the journey that we're in about show business mm-hmm. and the parallels that you can draw uh, – when it comes to movies that are about show business, it's funny that once again we have the artist that wants to take charge of his of his career, you mm-hmm. know, wants to direct. We have the financiers that keep meddling and interfering with the product, and and then you have uh, the lavish parties. I mean, player entourage, <laughs> <Blitz> <laughs> over Broadway. Uh, it's gonna be a little different, a, good, a little change of gears when we do Chorus Line because mm-hmm. Chorus Line. From what I remember, it's mostly restricted to just the theater and the rehearsal that goes on there. Um, but I'm sure at some point there will be some talk about artistic integrity and, <laughs> and, and compromising and sacrifices. But here, there's there's conversations between John Cusack and Chas Palminteri that could be in the Entourage movie or they could be in the player and so on. You could like yeah. interchange them because they're talking about the, these, same, thing. the same concerns. There's uh, And yet, they're... Very different movies when it comes to just not just the flavor, but also the quality. <laughs> so. Yes, I would agree with that. Entourage right. movie is the best of them all, but well, uh, you can stop that right now. Uh, Eddie was giving me shit because I continuously referred to him as Vincent throughout the recording. He told me that. He told me he said that you revealed how much of a noob you were because nobody calls him Vincent. He's like it's either Vinny or Vince, um, but. Good news is I never have to fucking watch that movie again. So um, you never have to refer to him again. No, ever. I don't. Um, so that will do it for Bullets Over Broadway, part three of our four-part series of uh, the Hollywood, uh, the Contrarians go to Hollywood. Um, now, even though I, th- I thought you were going to <laughs> change, it. the Contrarians go to show business. <laughs> The Contrarians hit the silver screen. That'll wrap that up. As always, uh, we'll move into plugs now. Um, myself. You said you wanted to unplug something? I, I wanna... or, 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 no, because that, that would be something that you've already plugged. No, you want to... Uh... No, unplugged would just be if I had an acoustic set. <laughs> no, I will plug. I watched Hamlet 2 again this week, and that movie's fucking fantastic. You... I, you love it so much that it, I do wonder if I need to rewatch it. Cause I, I think told, you do. I was not, especially because now I like Steve Coogan. Uh, that was the first time I'd seen Steve Coogan on screen, and he, I just couldn't get into it. Oh, he's like super neurotic and stuff. The, the scene in particular I love so much in that movie is when he's writing the script for his play, and he's crying while he's writing it because what he thinks he's writing <laughs> is so incredible. Um, but it's got David Arquette just in this random-ass role, and he's great. And um, Elizabeth Shue playing Elizabeth Shue. Yeah, it's just a uh, um, Academy Award winner. Uh, Nate Faxton's in it, too. Who's that? Him and Jim Rash. Along oh, with Alexander Payne, right. who did yeah, the yeah, Descendants. Yeah. So, um, he, he has a small part, but it's funny. It's just kind of um, a well-made fuck you type of movie of just like, hey, you guys gave us money, so th- I'm going to make the movie I want to type of thing. So, very entertaining. Um, I don't want to bury as much as I just want to vent my frustrations about finally watching X-Men I'm Apocalypse. here for you, and I'm here to tell you that you're wrong, but go ahead. How am I wrong? 
Well, I don't even. I mean, I, I heard you whining on like Twitter or Facebook. We're like, hey, it wasn't good enough. No, 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 no. no. It's fine. For the first ninety-eight percent of that movie, <laughs> I was sitting there going, "What did we ever? What was everyone bitching about?" Like, I was sitting there going, "Like, yeah, it's not perfect, but it's not bad." And then the ending happened, and I was like, "Fuck!" I literally threw a pillow at my TV. I was so, so angry. So it's literally it's the opposite of La La Land, where. In La La Land, it just sucks until you get to the last five percent, and uh, here you you just. So when exactly did it turn? When the Phoenix you? came out, I was like, no, why? No. You, don't tell me you were like the super nerd that you're. That was like the Ray did that. The Ray did the Phoenix. No, oh. Jean would not have known that she had that power at that point. Well, but I don't think that she does it consciously. No, that's the exact thing. Like she, it's not something it, she can't go flame on, <laughs> and then it fucking happens. It's like, well, and then also that completely fucks up the timeline. But the timeline, dude, don't be that guy. Don't be the guy that's still trying to reconcile the timeline from the original movies. I'm not. With... They are. No, they 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 pretty much established that we are in a brand new timeline. And, since when? And since Days of Future Past happened. So why are all the actors the same? Because some stuff changes, but not everything changes. Okay. Well, the Phoenix... Okay, that's time travel 101. It, it's almost like saying, why Why is uh, uh, the guy that plays Biff... Why is guy blue? <laughs> no. Why is the guy that plays Biff the same actor? You know, why is he the same actor even after the timeline changes? Okay. Well, I'm just saying. You know, if if what's his name is supposed to grow up to look like like Hugh Jackman, or supposed to grow up to look like Famke Jansen, or 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 uh, what's the name of a uh, Cyclops, James Marsden? Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, <laughs> then that's what they grow up to look like, and maybe they don't grow up to look like that guy anymore because. Even more stuff changes down the way, but I did. It was cool seeing Ty Sheridan because I hadn't seen him in anything since Mud, so that was cool. But no, the Fe- no, the Phoenix them using that as the trope to end that movie pissed me off. And also, like Apocalypse is so hokey, um, and it really annoyed me that he wasn't Apocalypse. He was just <laughs> Oscar Isaac, allegedly Oscar Isaac in blue paint. No, I think his apocalypse is just not Oscar Isaac. That's the thing. I, that's the one thing no, that bothered me. He wasn't apocalypse in that he didn't like. He only grew at one point. And it was in a dreamscape, and it's like no apocalypse can do whatever the fuck he wants. Like, but you're being nerdy again. Now you're like, hey, yeah, because you don't fuck with the X Men. <laughs> <thing>, all right. <laughs> and yeah, it's uh, as someone who my favorite comic book arc ever was the Phoenix Saga. Uh-huh. I personally took offense to the ending of that film. That being said. Uh, another frustration I have is Fassbender's this incredible actor, and they barely used him in that. They gave him a couple of moments. I mean, they killed his wife and daughter in front of him. And then he used her necklace to slit all their throats. Badass. And then he yelled at God, yes. Is this what you want from yes. me? Fassbender. I have no shame. <laughs> and then he goes and destroys Auschwitz. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um... Now, I will say on the positive, I just, I fucking hated the ending. I, I really did. That's what really just. I was done, and then how like Xavier's hair just melts off. <laughs> it's kind of like the end. Of, I really like First Class too, but like the end, how the bullet in his back, and then I can't feel my legs. <laughs> um, it's like they feel like they have to hit these certain notes. But regardless of that, I will be very complimentary of Psylocke because she was always a character I really dug in the comics as a kid. I, I like her. I feel that they didn't do much with her. Well, I but... think that's by design also because she has the brooding shot at the end where she's still a bad right, guy. Right, right. She'll and, come back. I mean, God bless Olivia Munn. She's extremely attractive and very charming, but acting is not her strong suit. So they limited oh, her lines. Dude, Dad, you sound like somebody who never watched the newsroom because she is great in the newsroom. Well, I, I guess that's unfair. I should say basically serious 
you know, comic book style acting. The few lines that she got were it was just like, okay, I'm glad they kind of limited the dialogue you had. And I also was so psyched that she had the comic book outfit. Like she really was just the interpretation from the comic book, which I thought was so fucking cool. So, so you're telling me that, you know, cause I, I think they hint pretty heavily that Mr. Sinister is next. Right. So do you expect Mr. Sinister to look like the comic book? I guess because that's tough to pull off. The white face, the red diamond, <laughs> the on red the diamond, the like kind of weird cape that has like the, all the tentacles and shit. Yeah. yeah. Um. I, I mean, I don't know. The apocalypse thing was kind of weird. I, I mean, the whole thing with the movie is that ending was just it made me so mad. But at the same time, I remember when that movie came out, and I just watched it in the past week. Like people were like, fucking like, t like shitting on it, like. Comparing it to like X Men Origins Wolverine and shit no. like that, and yeah, not at all. Even the Hugh Jackman cameo, a lot of people were uh, unpleased with, which I thought it was. I thought it was fucking cool. He had the Weapon X gear on and shit. I was like, yes, <laughs> yeah, I, I liked it because also it's just like it's just the right amount of Wolverine for this movie. You know, it's like they're facing him out of the franchise. He gets one more solo movie and then he's done. They do do that stupid ass 20th Century Fox, like where you have to wink at the audience thing where he like stabs and then he looks into the surveillance camera. <laughs> but I did also fucking, I thought it was so cool how his exit was Gene gave him back some of his memories. Right, right. Yeah. So had the Phoenix not come out, that movie would have been just fine. Uh, and of course, it is kind of silly, but they also hit you with the self referential. We always know the third one's the worst. <laughs> yeah, when they're coming out of the movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I just needed to vent my frustration about that movie. That's all right. I mean, overall, I think you liked it. Yeah, I did. So you, we can just ignore what you didn't like because I thought the Phoenix. I, I like it, I guess, because I don't have a problem with them reintroducing the Phoenix aspect to Jean. I don't think that she became the Phoenix. I think it was just it's just gonna happen. Yes, it's not gonna be like in the comics where it's like this. Cosmic where force she that, flies that, into the, <laughs> the core of the sun to protect the galaxy forever. Right, right. No, I think that you know, next time that we deal with Jean's powers, if we get to the Phoenix thing, it's just gonna be kind of like what they did with uh, uh what was the last hand? You know, where the Phoenix is just her her powers consuming her, but hopefully it'll be done a much better way. Hopefully, hopefully, yeah. I mean, I I trust them. Uh, no, it was it was a lot like I could compare it to the Strangers, that horror movie that I'm a really big fan of until the ending. Right. Like if it had cut off at this certain point, I would have a much better memory of it than I did. Um, but yeah, that's that. Julio, what do you have to plug for us? Um, I have one plug, which is the musical series Galavant, which came out. Dude, it's been like at least two years because. It started when uh, I was living at my old apartment, the one that I lived in before this one. Okay. And uh, so it was like eight episodes. I think it was on ABC. It's basically a musical set in medieval times, and it's really funny. It has a little bit of that Monty Python vibe where the guy, uh, the hero, is just this this grace knight uh, who let his the woman that he was going to marry was kidnapped by the king. This all happens like in the first ten minutes of the show. Uh he was going to marry this woman. He's a hero. Everybody loves him. He's going to marry this woman. The woman's kidnapped by the evil king because uh, he, the king thinks she's hot. And so he goes to rescue her. When he finally gets to rescue her, it turns out that she's been thinking about it while she's been captive. And she'd rather stay with the king because, you know, he's rich <laughs> and has power and everything. And so he goes and he lets himself go. And, uh, and so the show is the story of what happens when he comes back because so, there's a mission for him. And the mission includes defeating the the king 
that that embarrass him once. So it's mm. and and there's a lot of fun and there's like three or four songs per episode and it's just they're written by uh I don't remember which movies they worked uh on specifically, but I know there's like a couple of like Disney songwriters. So they're like the music nice. is really good and it's really funny, but of course it's also it's pretty risque. There's a lot of talk about sex and so it's not it's these guys that used to work at Disney but kind of cutting loose and just being a little more I wouldn't say R rated, but at least PG thirteen rated. Nice. Um uh what's the name of that guy? The big guy, British guy. Josh Gad. <laughs> British. <laughs> I also I didn't say super talented guy. <laughs> uh but what's his name? I don't know, but he plays like the big heavy in this one. And he's in all the Guy Ritchie movies, or at least the Guy Ritchie movies before he did Sherlock Holmes. Um uh, Vinnie Jones. Oh, okay. Okay. You you motioned like heavy, like well, no, this was me being like muscular. Oh, okay. Yeah, Vinnie Jones. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, gonna be emotional. Yes. He's also in Eurotrip. He's also the juggernaut. That's true. I should have gone there. Yeah. Uh <laughs> but yeah, so he is he plays like the the king's main bodyguard or nice. whatever. And the entire show you're waiting for him to sing. <laughs> and so what happened is I watched the eight seasons of the first the eight episodes of the first season. And then they took a break and they actually got renewed for the second season. But I didn't. It was right around the time I was moving, mm-hmm. so I missed the first episode. And uh, I set my DVR to record the rest. And by the time I got on demand to watch the first episode that I hadn't recorded, it was not available anymore. Uh. And I didn't want to start with the second episode of the second season, so I just waited and waited. And then it showed up on Netflix, I think, last year at some point, and it has both seasons. So if you want to watch, I don't know if they ever got renewed for a third one, if there's going to be a third one. I don't even know how to, because I haven't watched the second season yet. Mm-hmm. I just, I literally, a few days ago, started re-watching the first season, uh, just to, to get back into it before I go into the second one. But throughout the first season, I think that Vinnie Jones gets to kind of sing a little bit, like a couple lines, in nice. the middle of someone else's big song. I have high hopes that by the second season, he gets a solo. <laughs> uh, but the show is delightful. It's really funny. It's really clever. Uh and uh, it's now it's on Netflix, so you can just binge through the entire... I think it's like 20 episodes total, so it's pretty amazing. Nice. Uh, as always, the Festive Years, their album, Don't Let Me... Use You. Thank you. Opening track is Last Stand. Closing track, Summer of 1999. As always, give them a plug. Uh, questions, comments, concerns, gripes. If you don't like Woody Allen's movies... We are the contrarians at gmail.com. And you can always follow us on Twitter at the beginning. Give you our... Um, but yeah, did you have anything else to add this week, Julio? Nope. Uh, we're, we're coming to uh, to an end on this journey of uh, show business and actors and directors. I'm uh, looking forward to seeing you squirm through a chorus line <laughs> next week. Oh, Mike Douglas. I, I do feel better, though, that, you know, because I made you suffer through the Entourage movie. So at least this week we watch a movie that you enjoy oh, a lot yeah, more. Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, Going to the Royal Rumble this weekend. Very excited about that. So I imagine we'll hear some reviews of that on the next podcast. But uh, yeah, outside of that, it was fun. That was Bullets Over Broadway. We are the Contrarians. We are right. You are wrong. And we will catch you next time. The summer of 
but this is our introduction to Chaz Palmerini. Palmentary. Palmentary, my bad. Chaz Pomegranate. Pomegranate. <laughs> uh, 